Welcome to A Life Lived Backwards, One Man's Life, the accompanying podcast to Larry Rutman's memoir, A Life Lived Backwards, an existential triad of friendship, inquisitiveness, and maturation. Hi there, I'm Jordan Rich with a pretty easy task and a fun one at that. I pose questions to Larry and with that razor sharp memory of his and a great talent for storytelling, well, you just have to settle back and enjoy the ride. Well, here we are again, and there's so much to cover with a man who's living life to the fullest at 90 and has so much energy. But you had energy, too, Larry, when you were at UMass all those many years ago, and you have a great memory for it. So I'm going to toss a few names your way, and please share with us some stories. Milt Crane. Milton Crane. What's his story? Well, when I went to the University of Massachusetts, I guess I was still 17. It was uh, September of... uh, 1948, and the one of the the first people I met there, among many, that when I was introduced to my classmates was Milt Crane. Now, Milt Crane grew up in Stoughton. Stoughton's a small town. His Mm -hmm. father, Isidore, was an old-world tailor, came from the old country, and I guess his mother did. And I think that they were uh, Orthodox Jews. And Milton was a handsome young man. And uh, like you, Jordan— he was a very diplomatic person who didn't tell you much about himself, but everybody liked him because he not only looked well, but he his persona was good. And for Milt himself, coming to college was an entirely new experience because as an Orthodox Jewish kid growing up in an Orthodox home, he didn't have the social context mm. that, uh, that the University of Massachusetts gave him. Well, anyway, being a bad guy, <laughs> I always try to associate with good guys like you and Milt. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm honored. Go ahead. <laughs> so what happened is that um, Milt and I be, became friends. But at, uh, I, I, have, I, I have the habit as an interviewer and as a person of trying to find out what makes a person tick. Mm-hmm. And I will, t- I will ask personal questions. And Milt at first didn't want to let me see what made him tick. But within a couple of days, he started to do that. And uh, the result of that was we became fast friends. And while he rose to be the president of the fraternity and the vice president of the class, and and he was up on stage in, in uh, shows of clothes and stuff like that because he was almost like, he was like a male model, very mm-hmm. handsome. So Milt and I developed a friendship that was that is a lifetime friendship. He now he's lived in Atlanta for many years. I'm still very friendly with him. Now you might ask, uh, you know, I could tell you so much about Milt Crane, but let me tell you a few highlights. In our third year, you know, Guys and Dolls at that time was the big show on Broadway. Yes. So that uh, of the 1950s and starred Sam Levine, and uh, also uh, Robert Alda, who's the father of Alan Alda. Mm-hmm. And uh, Vivian Blaine, who was a wonderful dancer and singer. Mm. So Milt and I concocted a plan to go down to New York and be and get backstage at Guys and Dolls. Who knows why? Probably was my idea. <laughs> and Milt probably said, "Okay, we'll do that, Larry." Uh, and um, so we started out. Yeah, in order to get to New York, you had to take a bus to Springfield and a train from Springfield. So on the train, this young, sexy girl that was from Brookline High School that I knew from afar at Brookline High School was there in the club car, and we sprung up a conversation with her, and she liked us. And, you know, this girl was really stacked. 
And uh, so we, guys and dolls went out of our head for a few minutes. <laughs> Just the dolls in front of you, you were concerned with. <laughs> but we were, you know, we were in over our heads because she was way more sophisticated at the same age than we were. I asked a question in my memoir, do girls grow up faster than guys? I think they mm. probably do. But anyway, um, she we said goodbye. And uh, so we went to the stage door. Now, we the story we used, I think, was... To get in was, you know, we're pledging uh, a school, and they've uh, we're pledging a fraternity at a right, school right. up in Massachusetts, and if we don't get in, they're not going to let us into the fraternity, something like that. So, who? So that was an early experience in conning people. So you got in. We got in, and we went first. We went to Sam Levine's dressing room, and he was very unhappy to see us and very nasty wasn't in a very good mood who let you guys in here yeah and he says you know you shouldn't be in here so anyway the next stop was vivian blaine she was lovely she was terrific to us and she said oh yeah yeah come to the show tonight and uh so i said uh so we said we'd like to meet some of the after uh we'd like to meet some of the cast you know they had a bunch of showgirls but she says, you can meet all these people. They all have breakfast at so-and-so delicatessen down the street yeah, every morning. Yeah. If you go there tomorrow and you say that Vivian blah, 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 you'll get to know all these people. So Milton and I went there the next morning, and indeed, the cast was there. And we you know, were friendly with them, and there were a couple of very nice young ladies, I think, from the Midwest. And we had coffee and breakfast with them and a very nice conversation. We might have walked, taken a walk with them or something like that. So that um, it was, it was. So we got in. It was, and we Good saw guys and dolls. Now, did did you have any interaction with Robert Alda at any point? No. No. Okay. Um, I want to double back before we go on to um, the alligator story, and I can't wait for that. You mentioned Milts um, being from a, an Orthodox Jewish family. Was there either overt or subtle anti-Semitism because of his background that you noticed? Or what was it like at UMass at that time if you were a, a Jew? No, I don't think so because um, Milt, uh, I don't think many people knew he had been Orthodox because everything about his appearance and his demeanor mm-hmm. okay. suggested just uh, a regular guy. He didn't wear a, uh, a skull cap or anything like okay. that. Okay. And uh, he's... he's he was a striking-looking guy. Good guy to hang around with. Good wingman, right? Oh, he was. Uh, you know, <laughs> I mean, I can tell you the tuna fish story where I where I said, "Let's go down in the middle of the night, the two o'clock, to the commissary of the fraternity house," and we had tuna fish and chips and had a great time. And then the next morning, they said somebody was in the commissary last night. Must have been Rutman. Of course, it always. The, the, the signs point to you in many re- respects. But uh, that brings us so to Let me the, just once say once. Yes. So, so I said to myself, I can't let Milto, as chancellor of the, school, of the uh, fraternity, yeah. take the fall for this. So they knew why we were friendly. So they said, could Milt have been with you? I said, no, no, no. He was asleep. I went down by myself. Sounds like the uh, strawberry story from Kane Mutiny. I mean, who had the key <laughs> to the storeroom? Um, the alligator. I have no idea what this is all about. I I, I, I trust you weren't eaten one by one because you're here. <laughs> What's the alligator story? <laughs> well, you know, Milton and I became, as I told you, we became lifetime friends. So about yeah, maybe 15 years ago, um, we met down in Florida. He had a condo there. I had a condo there. And we met and we decided to go out on the Tamiami Trail to where the Indians uh, – I think the Mocas, I forget the exact name of the tribe, but they're well-known in Florida. 
and uh, and and we had bikes. We drove out. We hired a bike, and you drive into the area where there are all sorts of wildlife, mm-hmm. and um, so we're out there, parked the bikes, and I said, "Come on, we'll walk through this trail that goes into the bush," and we're walking in there, and all of a sudden, we come upon an alligator lying in the trail in front of us. And I said, Milton, when we turned around and we hightailed it out of there, you know, alligators are fast. Very fast. They uh, Deceivingly so. So it chased you a bit? I, I, don't, I don't know that he – I didn't look around over my shoulder. <laughs> I just kept running until we got out into the clear. But I think that uh, we both felt that um, we ought not to go into places we didn't know about. Which is news to me because you – Strike me as the kind of guy who will stare down anybody, but maybe not an alligator. <laughs> maybe not an alligator. Now, there's some other gents that you wanted to mention, uh, and I'll just mention their first names, Gene, George, and Melvin. Let's start with Gene Eisenberg. Who's, who's he? Well, Gene Eisenberg was a poor kid from Chelsea, and he was in our uh, – Chelsea is, you know, one of the suburbs. Uh, not a suburb, but actually a section. No, I think it's a separate city. It is that, a separate city, but it's a, t- a line with Boston. Yeah, very close to Boston. And uh, so uh, Gene at the fraternity house was famous for the uh, for playing cards all the time with a green visor over his uh, face. And these guys would smoke rising from the table. And they were serious, but they were playing for nickels and dimes relatively. Who could have predicted that Gene Eisenberg would go into the, you know, we knew he was smart, but who knew he would go into the oil business and become Gene Eisenberg, who made tens, hundreds of millions of dollars and contributed a sizable amount to UMass to form the now well-known and famous Eisenberg School of Business, at which I've spoken about a book that I wrote. Mm. But um, Gene became, he, he passed away about, I don't know, five, six years ago, maybe a few minutes, something like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, he um, he was uh, actually, uh, you know, a uh, rags to riches. Rags to riches from Chelsea, Massachusetts, all the way to international... Yeah, and I wasn't close to Gene, but Same. of course he was. He was a legend in his own time. What about George Delaney? Uh, what's his story? Well, some people lived in the fraternity house from their first year. I didn't. I, I Milton and I became roommates in our second year at the fraternity house, and uh, we were t- roommates the next three years. Uh, but um, George and I be, uh, roomed together in one of the dormitories. Now, George was only a few years older than me. I was like 18, and he was probably 22 or 23. But in those intervening four years, he had been in the Merchant Marine. And he, uh, I think he, he liked me, and, but he, he was a kid. I mean, I was a kid, and he was already a man mm. because as a ship's officer in the Merchant Marine, they sailed, he sailed a route mostly to South America and got to know all these senoritas and these places down there. Yeah, you do grow up fast when you're in an organization like that. Right. And he right. told me stories and I'd say, really? Really? Oh. And <laughs> she was really, and tell me, well, this one was very oh. beautiful. Wow. She sounds great. And uh, and that uh, Buenos Aires sounds like a wonderful city to visit. Anyway, George, George and I had uh, a nice relationship and um, we were friendly all through college and then I lost track of him. But then at the 40th anniversary of our uh, class, there he was. And we hooked up again. And we were friendly after that. He had become a lawyer. 
in New York. Like, and, like uh, you and uh, attorney. After, you know, after college. Right, right. And uh, married and had a family and all that sort of thing. And uh, we recounted college days and communicated after that time. Now, I've lost track of him again. He could well have passed on. But, George, uh, the reason I mention him is because for a young guy in his late teens to meet somebody of relatively similar age but whose experiences in the years that separated us was such that he could sort of tell me stories that helped me frame the my development or where I was going yeah. or what I was becoming. Well, that's the advantage of, of the roommate system in, in general, at least in the old days. I mean, you, you got to know a different person pretty quickly because he's bunking with you. Uh, just a quick question before we talk about the last name on the list. Uh, fraternities uh, are notorious for pranks. You mentioned a few minor things you and Milton might have uh, pulled off, but what, were there any major hazing issues or prank moments that come to mind, or was it a pretty solid group? Well, you know, I read about this stuff. Um, I read about this stuff uh, that uh, some fraternities have done where pledges have died. And, and Yeah, it, it's really ugly at times oh, it is, in the yeah. modern no, day. I, now, we didn't have anything like that, but basically I disapprove of the fraternity system. You know, everybody said... Uh, for whatever reason, I don't know, that I would become a major force in the fraternity, that I'd become the president because of this, that, and the other. But I soon discovered that I was really out of sympathy with the fraternity system. First of all, the other Jewish fraternity on campus was A.E. Pi, and you weren't supposed to be friendly with the guys from A.E. Pi because they're the they're the opposite. They're the uh, the other Jewish fraternity. I thought that was totally ridiculous. Yeah, it is kind of it's an it's antiquated system. And some of the guys over there I really liked. Yeah. And um, so early on, even though I was in a fraternity and I took advantage of what it offered, I basically didn't harbor the idea of advancing in the fraternity. Although I wanted, you know, there were fellows there I wanted to be friendly with, mm. and things that were good about the fraternity. And having a you know a place to dine and sleep and but basically um, I think that um, a lot about the college experience, especially the fraternity idea, was not uh, in line with how I de- how I developed. But uh, Jordan, I was uh, to make it a short story. I was too young then to really latch on to my individuality. Mm-hmm. That came later. Um, I think that at 20 or 21, you uh, you don't accept yourself for what you are. Well, no, I, I couldn't agree more, Larry. I mean, uh, no one would, would knock anybody at that age for wanting to be part of a group, especially on a college uh, basis. And uh, it makes perfect sense. You, But I think as an individual, and I've known you for many years now, you know, I can see you not being a joiner of an organization like that in later I've never years. joined. Yeah. I'm not a joiner. You're like Groucho. You wouldn't become a member of a club that would have you as a member. Is that you? (laughs) (laughs) I want to ask you about one more name on this particular episode. Melvin, and I can't pronounce it the last name. Gluskull. Gluskull. Okay. What's Melvin's story? Yeah, G-L-U-S-G-O-L. Mel became a lawyer himself. He was at the University of Massachusetts. And he left – BU at that time had a system whereby you could become – you could get your college degree and a legal degree in five years – but the usual course is you go to college for four years and then go to law school for three years. I chose the latter course. He chose the former course. 
we weren't too friendly in co- in college at UMass because he was from Chelsea, a reverend, depending on what day you spoke to him, and uh, uh, and I was from Brookline, from you know the Golden Boy or whatever, <laughs> and um, so. We were vaguely friendly, but sort of unfriendly. I don't know. Melvin Gluskall is a is a big thing in my life because we're friendly to this day. I speak to him often. He lives up in uh, in uh, Maine, just over the border from New Hampshire. And uh, it, Melvin is a man. Uh, you know, we have differences in personality, but uh, but his he's a he's mentally very sharp, has great ideas, and even though he's not particularly well, he just turned ninety. His spirit of life. Even when he was depressed, you'd never know it Mm. because he's living every day to the fullest, and uh, he's one of those people that has a real-life spirit. Anyway, when I I got out of law school, he was already practicing a couple of years. I went up to see him, and he he pulled rank on me. He handed me a book of letters that were published by the legal publisher, West Publishing Company, of letters from a father in England— to his son who was studying law, you got to do this, and this is how you relate to people, blah, blah, blah. Read this, Larry, you know, taking sort of a superior attitude. But very shortly thereafter, um, I was romantically interested in Priscilla Howe, who was a well-known singer of the period. She sang down at the Statler and uh, with a guy named Sammy Dale who played the violin mm-hmm. in a little orchestra. I mean, Ginger Rogers would come to perform there. I mean, mm. and he he was married, but he was extremely jealous of my relationship with Priscilla, who was a very dear person and a good singer. Arthur Godfrey had her on his show. And he one time he slipped me a Mickey Finn, that's in the book, because and I wound up not being able to see, and uh, they called the doctors and— uh, This was uh, the, the violinist? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, the violinist. He slipped you a Mickey. The way he had the bartender. Yeah, I know. I ordered a drink and wow, and uh, could have killed me. I pretty suppose. serious stuff. Oh yeah, yeah, That's right. Jealousy oh, he was, in a oh, new yeah. turn. Well, he's, Sammy Dale was really Sammy, some Italian last name. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So, uh, oh, wait a minute. So that um, that uh, so I survived that, and uh, yeah, Priscilla was the last lady I I really was friendly with until. And Lois came along right right after that, but that was like in the late fifties. I, I so uh, going back to Mel that you know I, I took, yeah. as we as I do I take tangents away from things. Uh, Mel Mel and I became friendly, and one weekend we went down to um, I guess it was Nantucket with Priscilla on my arm and his latest uh, lady of the day on his arm, and uh, we had a good time. And from that time on, we became extremely friendly. Now, the reason I say Mel has been so important in my life is that he's very unselfish as far as I'm concerned. Um, About 20 years ago, uh, when I started writing, we went out to dinner one night, and I said, um, you know, I I really would like to become a writer and an historian. And um, it, it really happened. And he always supported me. Not only did he support me, he gave me ideas. Now, I call what I do... Um, biographical cultural history. He invented that term and that I use. Um, uh, instead of oral history, mm. biographical cultural history, really more accurate. Mm-hmm. It's in my Wikipedia article. He uh, he loves Lois, of course. And uh, the other day I was talking to him and Lois came into the room. And I said, talk to Melton. 
they were, she was gone for 20 minutes talking to Mel. <laughs> and uh, so he's a very interesting conversationalist well, and a real showman and a real storyteller. You know, the kind of guy that they had as master of ceremonies and stuff Oh, sure, like that. sure. But uh, it's interesting how that, again, that memory of him su- supporting you and also inspiring you and – he might not even—he might have done it subconsciously or maybe purposely, but he did it nonetheless. It's very, very telling. It's very, very important in your life. Well, he always says to me, he says, "You're doing better than anybody. There's no 90-year-old guy like you. It's—it's it's terrific. You've done this. <laughs> you know, he's a—he's a real. But there's no envy or jealousy. Yeah, yeah. That's, it's all you know. That's a—that's a lucky—that's a lucky gift to have in a friend, especially over decades and decades. And, you know, he's had a little trouble in his life. Uh, we, we don't have to go into that. Uh, but he was a lawyer for many years. And um, now mm. he's, he's living up there in uh, New Hampshire, uh, separately from his wife, but they never divorced. And they talk every day. Um, but Mel is just saying, uh, you know, I'll tell you something. I, I can sum it up very easily for you, Jordan. You'd love to have him on your program. <laughs> That's all you need to say. I think I got a good sense as to who he is based on you. Larry, thank you as always. More to come, eh? Absolutely. You know, listen, Jordan, you're, you bring all these memories out. This has been a life lived backwards, one man's life. The accompanying podcast to Larry Ruttman's memoir, A Life Lived Backwards, an existential triad of friendship, inquisitiveness, and maturation. You can subscribe and download this podcast, available on all podcast platforms. For information on Larry, his books, lectures, and much more, visit the website LarryRutman.com. Also check out the extensive Larry Rutman page on Wikipedia. This is Jordan Rich inviting you to join us again next time as Larry shares more stories about friendship, inquisitiveness, and maturation on A Life Lived Backwards, One Man's Life.